Welcome, Frank. How are we? I'm very well. Thanks very much, Danny. No problem. I've been so looking forward to this conversation all week, so um, we'll get straight into it. So this noble art revolution that you've unleashed in the world, and you have unleashed it, um, is absolutely incredible. So over a very short space of time, um, you've managed to get 117,000 followers on Instagram, over 200,000 followers on TikTok. Um, one of your videos alone has over 3.3 million views, which is absolutely incredible in such a short space of time. So how did this all come about? Well, the TikTok thing started about 18 months ago, and we were training, my son Paul and I were training uh, at a gym called Board Box in Aberdeen. There's a young guy there called Gregor McPherson who just had his first professional fight. He's had four since and four undefeated in his boxing uh, January 26 uh, here in Glasgow at the Crown Plaza. So, Gregor, well, I went into the ring to try and work with him on a couple of things that I felt he needed polishing. And uh, unknown to me, Paul was videoing this. And he, at the end of it, he said, I, I videoed that and I'm going to put it on TikTok. And I thought, fine, I'd heard of it. I'd never been, never seen anything on TikTok. I didn't have the app or anything like that. And he's, I said, fine, let's, let's do it. And then very, very quickly, there was a, a, a great kind of uh, uh, grabbing of, of information from followers. And he said, you've got X amount of followers, you've got this, and it's moving up all the time. We, we started doing it every time we were in the gym. We'd shoot two or three or more instructional videos. In fact, at one point, we were posting 10 to 15 a day. Um, because that was the, the 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 kind of intelligence that we gathered that the more you put up, the more followers will, will go. Uh, so that's how it started, and it grew and grew and grew. And of course, TikTok's a young, essentially a young audience. So I used to be in television in STV or Grampian TV as it was up in Aberdeen, and we covered the whole of the north and northeast of Scotland. I would go into town in Aberdeen or anywhere in that region, and people would speak to me about being on TV. All that's gone now. And now I get young people coming out of their schools at lunchtime or whatever and stopping me, oh, are you the guy on TikTok? You know, and they get quite excited by that. And uh, it's really fascinating. Everyone I've spoke to about you coming on this week um, has seen one of your videos. Oh, amazing. When I said so, it's, 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 it's absolutely incredible. And you were just saying before we, we started there that, was it four weeks ago you had 100... Instagram followers? I think we had 170 about four weeks ago on Instagram. And then we we started, you know, and everybody said, oh, Instagram's a hard not to crack, you know, to find followers. And I was looking, I began to look at uh, people who'd been on Instagram for years and they maybe got a couple of thousand or, or whatever. So we we kind of plugged away at it. And there were two or, two or three uh, boxing Instagram pages they began to take notice and they would get in touch and say, would you mind if we put your video on here? Okay, fine. We, we haven't really kind of at that stage thought it through all that much. But what we did see with one particular page was that this guy's following. I was the only video on it. The others were still pictures of famous boxers and famous fights. And when he started putting my videos up, his followers doubled. <laughs> And very quickly, I'm talking about two or three weeks, they doubled. And we realized, hang on, but at the same time, that was helping us because people who were then looking at 
my videos on his thing, we're going to say, how do we, who is this guy? How do we find him? They started to look for me. They started to find me. And then the bizarre things happened. The celebrities. <laughs> Gary Oldman. Tony Parsons, the author. Um, another guy, uh, Christopher Chung, Chris Chung, who's an actor with Gary Oldman in Slow Horses. And all these people. Anderson, Anderson Silva. Silva. Yeah. Anderson Silva. So I'm thinking, Paul, my son, says, you'll never believe Anderson Silva's following you. And my thoughts was, who does he play for? Or <laughs> what band is he in? You know, tell me what his songs are so I'll recognise them. I didn't know he was a kind of all-time great in the world of UFC. Absolute legend. And, and maybe because of him, I'm getting lots and lots of UFC people from right across the world. We've got a big market in terms of followers in America. And we, you know, we, we, we've developed these bag mitts noble art bag mitts which allow you to close your hand properly which <laughs> new sparring gloves don't you know they're, they're pretty much rigid and through that we're we're watching in america how you know the sales in california texas new york oklahoma all right across the states and beyond so that there is great interest there but to have somebody like anderson silva when i read up on him and thought wow that's a fantastic thing. It's incredible. And it, the, the thing I love about it is so organic. Um, people try so hard to get followers. You weren't trying. And you, you went from a couple of hundred um, to 117,000 within four weeks. Yeah. Um, so if there's a definition of viral out there, <laughs> I, 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 um, I, I think that's it. Um, the bit that I really like about your videos as well, see on social media, there's an absolute race for attention so everything's getting shorter it's getting flashier it's um, substance over style and if you actually look at these videos there's actually no content to them at all it's just someone either looking good or sounding good yeah. with some some nice editing where your videos for social media they're a bit longer content so rather than being the seven seconds that people like just now they're some of them are um, in a couple of minutes um, and they're given really clear detailed instructional videos and people are grasping upon them. So it gives me a bit of hope that our attention span isn't eroding that much. Well, you know, that's interesting you say that because we, we took the view, look, if you're going to do it, do it in a way where you're offering something, you know, it, I appreciate you're following me, but I'm going to give you something in return for you following me. And that something will be, in my view, proper instruction but not only that, and this is the big thing as far as I think, I think it's one of the big kind of intriguing things for people, the fact that I'm 78 mm -hmm. and able to demonstrate, right? So I've seen lots and lots of social media boxing coaches. And sometimes I say, wow, how did he, how did he get away with that? They, that's not boxing. Yeah. And, and they set themselves up with this. Now, that's fine. Uh, but I thought I want to do it properly and I, I don't want the glitz and the glamour. I want the, the earthiness of a proper boxing gym and we'll do it there and we'll do it with the sound effects and we'll do it with the, the proper atmosphere and, and we'll do it with the proper equipment, the punch bags and all that. So I'm, I feel if I give something, then I'm getting something back in return, and which is followers. Mm -hmm. yeah. Which is incredible. So... And that's almost how I found you. So um, I, combat sports, love them. So MMA, boxing. So I follow a lot of different things. So you got into my feed and um, there was this older gentleman with grey hair standing <laughs> and all of a sudden you hit the bag and I was thinking, bloody hell. And it was your hand speed. 
yeah. that, that absolutely got me. Yeah. Um, then how you were moving and, and you were going about. So I, I think what most people will do when they see your videos will be surprised by that. Then they'll go down a rabbit hole of sitting watching the videos. But then the other bit that got me is, um, and you're so right, so many boxing coaches on Instagram are talking about the best knockout punch and this is how you, you check. Yeah. And what you're talking about is the real art of boxing. And it's things for people who don't do boxing, like me, you don't know what's going on in a ring. One of the ones um, that I thought was great, you were talking about if you just want to um, get somebody back up and give you a bit of space, punch them in the heart a couple of times. And, yeah. uh, and it's yeah. little things like that because as a non-boxer you see people get hit like that all the time you think well that wouldn't stop you but yeah. I guess it does it does yeah. I mean and people don't think about that in uh -huh. fact generally speaking now young boxers coming up don't think about body punching uh -huh. at all they're head hunters they want to be, they want to punch you in the jaw and punch you in the face which is fine but then they forget there's a whole big target below your chin and that's your body so there are ways you can punch all different parts of the body which will hurt and which will slow you up you know especially if you've got a guy a maniac who's coming at you at 100 miles an hour and and you it's hard to cope with these guys you know so what you've got to do is have a, a clear thought process how you're going to do it you know even if it's to the stage of actually grabbing the guy sticking your head to the side of his head and going to a clinch mm -hmm. until you can uh, calm him down and then take center stage and and, and dominate the fight so things like uh, punching in the heart mm -hmm. kind of does that you know and uh, it and I remember uh, boxing, a guy called Willie Ald uh, from Glasgow Corporation Transport. They had a big gym and they, they they had a lot of really good boxers. And I remember he was a southpaw, so he had a kind of direct line, if you like, with his left cross into my chest. And for the first round, that's all he did was lead and bang into my chest. And I thought, I'm going to cave in here. You know, and I went back after the first round and my trainer said, well, you, what's going on? And I said, this guy, I've never experienced this before. He's punching me in the, right in the centre of the chest all the time. He said, okay, and he told me what I should be doing and all that kind of thing. And, and he was right. And then in the next round, it was all over in my favour, fortunately. But so people think, well, you've got to punch him in the face. You don't, you punch him. The target area is from the waistband up, upwards to the top of your head. And uh, there's many ways that you can uh, deploy y your punches uh, to slow these people down and to hurt them. And, and there's all sorts of tips that come across in terms of the psychology of it. But the other aspect of it, and I know this is very important to you, um, reading up, I think it's a good that's going to come out of these videos. Um, boxing um, is a is a pathway for so much. Um, for young people, it can be the way out of hell. Yeah. It can give them the discipline and substance they need to do it. But even your your videos, um, someone who is a bit older in their life and has maybe been sedentary and thinks, I'm going to go and get off the couch. So yeah. I, I think there is a lot of good going to come out of your videos by pointing people towards boxing. Well, that's that's nice to say. And, and, and I must say you're right in terms of the content that we produce and then... And I, and I tell people, you know, get off the couch, get away from the TV, get down. I mean, I've done the videos in, in different parts of Aberdeen where I live, on the beach, um, down at the harbour area, in the, the, the central part of Aberdeen, right off Union Street in, in Union Terrace Gardens. 
shadow boxing, skipping, moving, anything. Do you know what? It make you feel like you're walking on air. Now, the comments I've had as a result of those kind of videos has come from people saying, I'm in, I'm, we had one yesterday, I'm 62, and you've inspired me to go back to the gym. Another guy phoned me from Glasgow, and, and he's, he's involved in a, a boxing club called Rob Roy, mm. And he said, I'm 54. I used to box when I was a, a youth. He said, I, I gave it up and I've, I've gone all to fat and I'm unfit and no muscle memory, anything like that. He said, watching your videos, I said to my two pals, let's go back to the gym. Let's go and, and keep fit again. Now they're doing it. Listen, I get loads of videos in that vein where the people are saying, basically, well, if you can do it, why can't? When I, I can at least have a try. Let's go for it, you know, let's try it. Let, and in fact, you know, once you get the drug back into you, you'll keep going and going. And what I say is, and this is essential, if you run an amateur boxing club and you see an old guy coming through the door and say, saying, can I join? You know, it's, it's what it's like anything, no more than a fiver a night that you go. Can I join? Please welcome that person in with open arms and say, yeah, of course. You're, you know, you're, you're not here to compete. You're here to keep fit. And keeping fit through boxing, I've always maintained, is the best way to fitness. Boxing is the best way to fitness. Believe me, I, I've tried lots of different things. Nothing like boxing does it for me. No, absolutely. And I hope you don't underestimate the positivity that brings us. Um, without... A fit body, you can't have a fit mind. Without getting moving, you can't do it. So these individual comments are people trying to change their life. Yeah. Um, so, it, it, and I think that's that's probably why you're resonating and, and growing so much. I also see that you you try and get into boxing clubs as well as much as you can. I do. Um, which I think is really important. And what I love to in your videos as well. You've got all these young guys crowding, crowding around you. They forgot about the camera and they're just listening. Yeah. Um, and you're you're speaking to them on a level they get. Yeah. Well, that's that's uh, one of the great satisfying points of me doing this. It's not about me. It's about giving back. Now, we took the we took the idea of let's go around the boxing clubs. Let's find out who want who wants me to come and visit them. Mm-hmm. So we've been to Hamilton. We've been to Toon. Dundee, we've been to one at Inverurie outside Aberdeen, two or three others. And uh, the feedback has been phenomenal uh, because I can see it. I can see it in the eyes of especially the kind of 14, 15, 16-year-olds, you know, who are still kind of in a transitional phase of gaining experience and learning the technique of boxing. You know, they're younger, it's more difficult. You know, the kind of mind wanders. But these guys are fixated on you and you could see it and, and try. And I've met some great people as a result of that. You know, and they still keep in touch through their comments and through personal messages and all that. And, and I get people saying, I've got my first fight coming up in a couple of weeks. What, and I'm feeling nervous. What, what should you do? And so... Through the, through the personal messages, I'm able to say to them, well, look, this is what you should do. Don't worry about it, blah, blah, blah. All that stuff that allows me to engage with them and, and try and guide them because 
believe you me, it takes a lot of courage even to step into the ring. Never mind take a punch in the face. So if if they're coming to me, it means they're really engaged. In so it. so what is that advice? Because I I take my hat off to anyone who climbs into a boxing ring, all the way from the the top level down to the church hall. Sure. It, it doesn't matter if you're in a stadium full of people in a church hall, you're still getting punched in the face, right? Yeah. So yeah. that that's the reality of the situation. Yeah. Um, so for that question that comes in, my first fight, I'm going into the ring. What advice do you give to these people? Well, the big thing, of course, is they're nervous. Mm. And they won't say it, but they're scared. Because there is a, a lot of apprehension. Any fight. Now, when you, I mean, I like 200 contests, and, and I won 170 of 200. them. 200? 200. Wow. Now, what you've got to remember is when I box, we were boxing every other week somewhere. And then we boxed in the championships, Scottish championships. Today, the Scottish championships are staged over uh, various weekends, right, until they reach the final. We did it all in one night. So if you, if you got to the final, you had, that was your third fight that night. Now, the way they did it is they had two weight divisions on in the one night. So obviously people need rest beforehand, you know, from one contest to the next. Like um, you've won the semi-final, you're in the final, so you've got another semi-final there, you've got two semi-finals in, say, the light middleweight division in the final. So you've got maybe an hour and a half to to get over, you know, to, to recharge the batteries. That doesn't always work because sometimes these fights that we're talking about uh, before you go in end quickly, <laughs> you know, so you, you find yourself back in there. So you've got three fights in the one night. So if you're on a, if you're on next, you don't want an early knockout. That's right. Yeah, uh -huh. That's right. That's right. And we was talking about that this morning at doing a seminar uh, here in Glasgow, uh, Glasgow Fitness, and they, and I was explaining that that the guy I'm boxing in the other semi-final, he's a knockout specialist, and so he's ended this quickly. And then I go to the light, the light middleweight division is a guy called Andy Wiper, who's a superstar amateur from uh, Air. He was a miner from Air, and he was a knockout specialist. And he was knocking everybody. So suddenly there's a knock on the changing room door and say, right, girl feather, you're on next. But how can I be? I've only been out half an hour, you know. So this is all, this is all stuff that's kind of what you would call primitive nowadays. But no matter which fight you go into, you are apprehensive because you're scared you're going to get hurt. And, and so what I tell young boxers in that situation is, to try and try and fix their mind on good habits, right? Don't try to be flash. Don't try anything. Never try anything that you haven't practiced a thousand times before you've gone in to the. You know, you get some kids that go in and say, "Well, I'll try this punch and that punch," and they haven't done it before, or they haven't done it often enough before. So the, what happens is they go in there ill prepared. Be prepared. Of course you're going to be apprehensive. Everybody is, no matter how experienced. You're going in there because, you know, there's a potential that you're going to get hurt. But the thing is, keep cool, keep your head. And what a lot of people, and this is what we work on in the seminars, and you may have seen them um, on my Instagram and so on, is the defensive part of boxing is essential. Today, in my view, the defensive part of boxing is kind of secondary, right? So you get all these young boxers going in and what they're thinking about is knocking your block off. 
But what they're forgetting is you're trying to knock mine off. So there's got to be that realisation that defence is just as important as the attack. Unfortunately, um, these young boxers coming up, um, they're media trained, media savvy. The way you get on the card is to knock folk out, yeah. isn't it? That's um, yeah. And they want to get noticed. You get such a, a a brief opportunity, and they're all trying to get noticed, and it probably is hurting the the art of boxing. Yeah, but the other thing too is it's hard to knock somebody out. You know, the knockouts are not as common as you would think. They they are maybe in the heavier divisions because these guys, like especially in, in the heavyweight division, these guys are great, big, massive, hulking brutes. You know, 18, 20 stone. And so when they hit you, no matter if you're a big guy as well, when they hit you, you feel it. <laughs> but it, it, it's it's less common in the lighter weights. In the professional, see, you've got to separate. Now, this is what we've got to remember. Amateur boxing, professional boxing, is they're worlds apart. Right? Pro boxers, generally speaking, especially at, at the top level, don't waste energy. But what that means is they stand very close to each other and they use head movement and parrying and, um, you know, moving the back foot to take their, their, their body into a different position to avoid punches. But they stand very close. And what that does mean, of course, is that they take a lot of punishment. And sometimes you watch some of these pros and at top level and you think, my goodness, how could they possibly subject themselves to that? Amateurs generally take more time and space away from their opponent. A lot of dancing around and, and that kind of thing. But that's only three rounds, you see. So they, they have the energy to do that. They couldn't do that over six, eight, ten rounds. They need to keep more self-contained, more disciplined. So when, when you're in these gyms, um, can you tell somebody who has natural talent, can you walk into a, a room full of people hitting bags and your eyes drawn towards somebody? Yeah. Or is it a bit more, is there, is there more to it than that? Is it a more ruined? No, I think you make a good point there because you, you see guys who get it, mm. right? Where I see this is when I demonstrate something and then I ask them to replicate that and the guys who get it are potentially naturals and you think wow you picked that up quickly I mean there was people here t today that I've been coaching and uh, I could do that now the big thing with me and it's a controversial thing is the cross right so I I go for the, the real old-fashioned cross which is used today at the top echelons of boxing, professional boxing and it's short and it's lethal and it's devastating whereas many of the coaches certainly on social media are going for a, a straight a straight arm cross which is pretty well meaningless because by the time it reaches its destination, your chin it's lost its power now generally speaking a lot of these young kids can't do it. They can't get the rhythm. They can't get the style. They can't get the movement where the punch is only delivered in the final six inches. And therefore, it's still got all its weight to come. And but you, So you can go around the bags. Some of them will get it eventually if they keep practicing, doing it again and again and again. Others can get it for a second time. And these are the ones you think, hmm, you, 
There's people there today, and I've gone and said, have you boxed? Yeah, I knew it. Yeah. Uh, but so the, the, there's a kind of discrepancy there. Some of them can't get it. Some will get it with time. Others have got it first time. What would you rather have if you were coaching somebody? Would you rather have that someone who is a, a natural God-given talent but with no boxing brain or someone who's average and has a real boxer IQ? Interesting. Um, that, that's a good one. I I think I think I'd probably like to hope that the guy with the, the natural talent could be developed into a thinker as well. But I rather think it's a good question. I rather think that the guy with average talent can be taught to be better. We can always teach somebody to improve. And if he's a thinker, he's going to take it in. Now, some kids soak it in from me. They, 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 they're like a sponge and they're saying, yeah, tell us more. We want you to learn more. How do you do this? How do you do that? You know, others you get are, are, are not terribly interested. And in fact, when you turn your back and go away to coach somebody else and come back to them 10 minutes later, they're back to the old habits. It's like it's gone in one way. I've, I've been through this. I've, I've said to one kid once, when I say a kid, he 14, 15. And, he, and I said, I've told you this at least over the course of the last three weeks, at least 20 times. And you've done it. And then when I walk away, you, you go back to doing the old stuff, you know. Now, that's the hard bit. Today, I was changing people's styles, changing the way they punched in certain punches. And I went round. Now, these are young adults. And I went round and I asked them if doing it my way, a left hook, for example, doing it my way felt awkward and diff different. And they, most of them said, yeah. Did it feel better? Oh, yeah. When I connected, it felt better. It felt the proper left hook. Uh, and I thought, wow, I've won it today. I won the battle. So you get you get these ways. I This is the great thrill for me in, in boxing. You know, the challenges that I face as a coach to try and, and demonstrating it actually helps because they could see it before. It's all right if you get an old coach or any coach saying, this is what I want you to do. That, mm. You know, how, how do you know? Show me. Show me what to do. Well, I'm not able because I'm old or I haven't mm -hmm. done it myself, but I've watched people do it. No, no, show me. So um, in terms of your own boxing career, you said there are 200 amateur fights, which is just incredible. Mm. Um, so... Did you box from a very early age or were you into it later? Or No, no. I, listen, my family, my dad ran boxing clubs in in Dundee. I'm from Lochie in Dundee, but I now live in Aberdeen. My oldest brother, Dan, he was a Scottish and British youth champion. But by the time he was 15, he decided he didn't like it anymore. He discovered girls <laughs> and good times. As we do. <laughs> As we do. And my dad was very, you know, my dad always took the view, if you're, if you're going to do it, do it properly. If, you don't, if you're not going to do it properly, then just bow out. And he was happy to bow out. Then my, my, the middle brother, Dennis, was a Scottish youth and senior champion, boxed for Scotland. And, and then I came after. Now, Dennis, nine years older than me, and I was going to my dad's gym the, the first one I remember, he'd had one before before that. I started going when I was four, right? And it was a kind of babysitting exercise, if you like. 
he I'd go to the gym and I'd watch all the boxers and I'd watch what they were doing. But probably unknown to me, I'm soaking it in. Now, my dad was a theorist and he would sit with me and he'd say, this is how you should be throwing a, a cross. This is what you do when you're in trouble. You clinch, you wrestle, you push, you pull until you get told by the referee you've got to stop that, right? But it allows you time to get your, to regain your your, your kind of equilibrium because you've maybe had a, a, a difficult punch. And so all these things, I was soaking it in all the time. And from a very early age, I was going to all the big international events in Scotland. So in those days, you had a Scotland team filled with stars. Remember, there was hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of boxers in clubs throughout every community in Scotland. And so you had all these guys and you got the Russians coming over or the Soviet Union of the world. You got the Americans coming. I was a young boy. I was going there. I was in the dressing room. I was listening. I was watching. And you had all these, in the time when it came my time to be a senior boxer in the 60s, BBC television had taken up the contract to televise all the international Scotland did at home live. And similarly with England. So every Thursday night from somewhere, there was live boxing with the commentator Harry Carpenter, a famous commentator, going all over the UK. I boxed twice in the Albert Hall in, in London. Oh. And 7,000 people there each time. I boxed abroad in Bulgaria in a football stadium in Sofia. Uh, when was that? When did you box? Well, that was in the, the mid-1960s. So in the height of the Cold War? Uh, well, yeah. yeah. I went to East Berlin in 1965 uh, for the European Championships. And it was always about going through Checkpoint Charlie. Wow. Uh, and the, the, the intriguing thing about that was, of course, you're, you're 19, you know, and, and you're thinking, wow, most of the guys weren't terribly interested. I was. I'm, we've got, I come from a family, we were interested in politics, we're interested in current affairs, all that kind of, so this, I'm, th I'm going to, I am going through Checkpoint Charlie with my suitcase and I'm looking up and in the, the, the turrets, if you like, are the guys in the binoculars and the machine guns and, and down here with the Alsatians are the guards, you know, at the other side, east in the east. With the uh, with their rifles and they're all they're watching every step of your way. Interestingly, went in with uh, went in with a team, a couple of journalists. There you are. That's how big amateur boxing was. Daily Express sent Jimmy Sanderson everywhere with the Scotland boxing team. Daily Record sent Dick Curry, who was an ex-champion boxer, as as the sports writer, and the Daily Mail. Uh, uh, one time uh, sent Alec Cameron who went on to be Scott Sport and all that stuff he was a young Daily Mail sports writer so that's how important we were on the back pages almost as much as football Dick McTaggart the only Olympic champion all these guys and when we, so we go to East, East Berlin and we're handed all these forms and you're asked how much money are you taking in the country that was a big deal uh, their currency and you're asked all kinds of questions and you get through and you show your papers and you're through, right? And I thought, fine, we're through, we're in, we're into our hotel. And I threw all these papers in the waste bin. Oh, dear. Right. Mm. Never thinking, I'm going to need them to get back out. But in fact, that was the most important bit. <laughs> I get, we get to come out about 10 days later and we, there's these long huts 
and you, you file in the hut and go down a kind of corridor where there's somebody behind the desk, an East German uh, soldier. And he said to me, your papers. And I said, what papers? He said, the papers. That, and it was a kind of disconnect in terms of the language. And I said, I don't have any papers. What I didn't realize was they're concerned about, are you selling your papers? Are you giving it to somebody who wants to leave the country and get out of East Germany? Uh, all that stuff was going on. I get, so all the team's through. I got kept behind for 15 minutes, stand there. Somebody else would come up, a senior officer. Right, where's your papers? I'm trying to explain. And eventually they said, okay, we believe you. So you walk through there with your case and the guns and the Alsatians and everybody's at the other side. saying, said, what kept you? I threw um, my papers away. Oh, my God, what did you do that for? <laughs> you should have um, had to spend a lot of time on your journey. I still there. Yeah. <laughs> that, that time era absolutely fascinates me. So as a, as a young man from Scotland um, going into communist Europe, yeah. as it was in the time, yeah. was there a stark difference between the West and the East side? Oh, yes. Oh, yeah. The thing that got me, I went to Bulgaria, and I boxed twice in Bulgaria, uh, I was telling the story earlier that uh, Ken Buchanan, who was on before me, and he was a featherweight at that time, he and I kind of vied for the featherweight vest, right? And I was, we, I boxed him at Leith Town Hall, 1,200 people. It was a fantastic atmosphere. He beat me on points. I moved up to lightweight because I was edging towards that weight division anyway. He, uh, he comes out of the ring and he comes down his steps. He'd won his contest. And I said, well done. And he said, well done, look at that. And he showed me his neck. And there was a big bite mark in his neck. Uh, and it was with the lower teeth because you've got a mouth guard in. This guy had been biting him in the clinches. And he'd been squealing. Buchanan was squealing and turning to the referee and saying, so. this guy. And the referee was a Bulgarian. So he went, no, 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 box on. You're fine. Mm. You know, so that was all the kind. But in terms of the day-to-day life of people there. You know the thing that got me then? I was talking about 19, went to Bulgaria in 1964. I saw women digging the roads, navvies. I saw women driving lorries. Right, now, we've taken all that time, if you like, for women to be driving buses and lorries and that kind of stuff. But in 1965, you never saw women doing that kind of job. Actually, digging trench, digging the roads, working on the roads, women, and, and doing all the stuff that was the, the exclusivity of, of men at that time in the West. So you saw all that. And in East, East Berlin, of course, they, they hadn't got around, even by 1965, they hadn't got around to rebuilding it. So what you saw was a lot of bombed out buildings, still 20 years after the end of the war. And, and you, you, it, it was kind of... It, it was kind of jolting. You would think, how, what's happened? You know, it's 20 years now since the war finished. So why haven't they rebuilt it? But of course they didn't. The economy wasn't there. No money. And, yeah. and no money, you know. And all the money was being poured into the West, into West Berlin. And you, it, was, it was bizarre because it was day and night when you crossed it in West Berlin. They had everything you wanted. Uh, but So that I found that intriguing. And uh, I'd like to have done more traveling in Eastern Europe because it, it really fascinated me. And you couldn't ask questions. We had a, a young um, student guy called Dieter. I remember them. 
and he was our interpreter. And I said, Dieter, what, what happens there? How do you how do you get this? How do you that kind of thing? And he he, was, he would climb up. What well, can't say? Why not? And I couldn't get over that because, of course, what we know now is that around every corner was somebody in the Stasi. People were listening. People were, you never knew who you were talking to. You didn't know if your neighbour was an informant or... It, well, that's mm, it. Yeah. That's it. Yeah. And that, that's one of the ways um, communists keep control. Yes. Um, yeah. Everyone tells on everyone and, right. you, and you don't know who you can trust. That's right. Um, so if you had to pick from your, your boxing career, if you had to pick the, the one highlight, what is it? Well, I think boxing in the Royal Albert Hall yeah, beating that must have been incredible. the English guy. That, that, that was the English champion uh, twice. And uh, and actually in between those two years, so it was alternately we were in Glasgow and, and uh, in London. And in between those two appearances in London, I boxed the British champion up here in a, in a place called the... Uh, Kelvin, I think they called it the Kelvin Sports Centre. Now, it was an, a former cinema on Argyle Street, right at the bottom, near Kelvin Grove. Yeah. And and it had been transformed into a, like a boxing arena. So that's where all the Scotland boxing went on once they had established that venue. Before that, it used to be the Kelvin Hall. And before that, it was St Andrew's Halls, which, which burned down, you know, and it was like brilliant venues. And so I would think th those appearances in the Royal Albert Hall w were fantastic. And also um, beating the British champion in Glasgow. And then, of course, winning, becoming the Scottish champion and boxing 17 times for Scotland. Uh, and that was a big deal. I, I, I won the Scottish title in the Music Hall in Edinburgh, uh, three fights. And, it, it, you know, it's one of these nights where you th everything kind of clicked. And you're thinking, wow, this is, this is good. I'm enjoying this. And once your name's on that belt, it can never be taken off, isn't yeah, it? That, that's that, 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 that's, that, that's right. What's the, um, the biggest difference to overcome between fighting in front of a small local crowd to a, a, a massive audience? Or when you're in the fight, does it not matter? Are you zoned out? No. I mean, you imagine it. When I was growing up in boxing and, and, and youth boxing, the reason I had so many fights, people, my contemporaries had so many fights, was because boxing clubs would turn their place into a venue once a month. So my dad in his club ran a, a show once a month, principally for the youths, so that the youths could get... There's nothing worse than training week after week after week uh, and nothing at the end of it, right? And that's what's happening now in amateur boxing. They, you know, I'm, I'm meeting Scottish champions and I say, how many contests have you had? Oh, I've had five. What, you're a Scottish champion? Yeah, because there's no, nobody's running shows, you know, fewer and fewer. So we boxed, because I was from Dundee, we'd have a fight in Montrose, in Perth, in Forfar, in Arbroath, all around that area, sometimes up in Aberdeen, and then we'd travel Fife. Fife was a big, you know, all the mining towns had, had, had boxing clubs. And you know, I need to say that. that uh, this is what's important about boxing for me. It's a community. The guys who run amateur boxing clubs are the lifeblood of the game, the grassroots of the game. And, you know, I'll, I'll say this, so I won't get into the politics of it, but they are being badly let down by the governing body, Boxing Scotland, who tend to neglect and ignore them, but they're happy to take their money f for registration fees and all that stuff. But these guys are opening up and the club 
night after night, men and women uh, 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 running clubs. And what they're finding is that there's been a resurgence, a great renaissance in amateur boxing. There's hundreds of boxers. I think I'm right in saying there's 700 registered boxers in Scotland. And that's pretty good. Uh, and, and they're taking these kids off the street and they're making them part of their own family. So if you've got a boxing club in Hamilton or Aberdeen or anywhere in Glasgow, and there's loads of them, they are part of that family of the boxing club. They've got the T-shirt and the tracksuit, and it doesn't matter who else is training with them. That's That guy's a Scottish champion, or he's boxed for Scotland, so it doesn't matter. It's the same as you. You're, you're, you're a member just like them, and you're treated and, that way. And for a lot of, especially from poorer areas, yep. A lot of these kids, it will be a safe place for them. It will be the only place where they feel comfortable, where someone cares about them, where they're seeing a bit of stability um, w within their lives. Um, so these grassroots clubs, it's not just about the sport element of it. it. It's about giving someone a way out. And you see these boxing clubs and they're scratching um, about trying to make ends meet, trying to do the best they, they, yeah. they can from the kids. And it's actually interesting to hear you think, your opinion that, Boxing Scotland's working against that almost. They are, they are. And I mean, I've is that getting run like a business? Is that the issue? Are they just trying well, to get is, is it well, profit? Well, here's over? the issue with it. It's a limited company, yeah. right? But it's not run run like a business. If it was run like a business, it'd be bust, right? So they rely on essentially government money coming through Sports Scotland, and they'll get huge grants. But they also rely heavily on the clubs. If you want to register a club, well, I'll give you an example. I spoke to I spoke to one club secretary. Now I'm on this kind of bandwagon and I've been making speeches <laughs> in clubs and I've been on the video saying that the pyramid is upside down. Do you know that the, the That's a great way you put it. Yeah, yeah. Boxing Scotland board. Now I'll say this openly, Boxing Scotland board of about five people have one person who has any experience of running a boxing club. The others Worse than not having experience, they're not interested, right? They don't go to boxing club, boxing shows. They don't visit boxing clubs. So what they do is they have handed over responsibility for the running of boxing in Scotland to one guy, the national coach. And he's got somebody else who's a kind of similar development officer. They've all got titles. And that's the other thing. They've got development officers in every district. When I asked a director recently, what do these development officers do? He shrugged his shoulders and said, no idea. That's and incredible. I said, but you're on the board. No idea. There are no meetings. There is no declaration of finances. We don't know what their finances are. So nobody knows. Sorry. Nobody knows. Okay, so what's happening? What's happening now is that clubs are paying out for all kinds of things. Registration, boxers being registered, um, having their medical checkout, insurance costs. I mean, I have some anecdotal evidence, which I can't repeat because, I, you know, I can't substantiate it. People have come from boxing clubs. They phone me all the time and say, you will never believe what's happened. And they tell me this. And I ask every boxing club I'm in touch with, I say to them, how do you get on with boxing, Scotland? And they say, please, don't go there. They're a nightmare, right? So I'm thinking, what, that, there's no need for it to be like that. 
But it's like that because, in my view, it's undemocratic, right? It's being allowed to be run by one or two people. So how do you get on the board? It's not voted in by the members or...? No. 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 And that's the thing. Um, One of the things you say to clubs is, how do you get on? And they say, I don't know, we don't have a relationship. I say, of course you should. Yeah, well, we don't. Why? They don't pick up the phone when you phone. They don't reply to emails. Now, I've experienced that personally. When I've tried several times over the years, I've emailed them and they haven't got back to me. And and they, they just don't take any heed of the clubs. And you can't go to the um, fitness centre there for their elite boxers, which is their headquarters, without a prior engagement and a prior appointment. You can't just walk out and say, can I see so-and-so? You can't. And so, and, the, and, and then, he, and here's a worrying thing, right? Now, if bo- anybody in Boxing Scotland is listening to this, they can, I'd be very happy for them to come on and deny this. I'm heard from more than two or three people that there are boxers in the elite squad who have been told, you have an apprenticeship, give it up. You're in here full time. You're going to university. No, give it up. You're in the elite squad, be here full time. Hires, forget your hires, be here. So, hang on a second. What happened to amateur boxing? We're not professionals. We're not doing it for a living. We're doing it for the love of the sport. And they're telling these highly paid officials of Boxing Scotland on the staff are telling boxers, this is what you'll do. You'll be full time in the gym every day. Now, that can't be right. That can't be right. So you've got these boxers putting it on hold. What for? There's never going to be Olympic champions because after Paris Olympics this year, boxing's kicked out because the corruption in the International Boxing Association, their prior kind of um, uh, regime, now it's a new lot in there trying to say, no, no, we're new now, we're different, we, we won't be. But it was loaded with Russian uh, officials in, in the previous um, regime and the corruption was off the scale and therefore the International Olympic Committee said, you're out. Yeah, which you know? is a massive loss. Yeah. Because if you think about all the... The UK boxers that if if it came through that track, it's very well funded. Of course, um, massively funded. Yeah. They they almost they almost get fast tracked, and you've you've touched on a, a point there um, that I was going to ask you about. Um, so, boxing does a whole lot of good. Um, it also, like any sport, has a, its darker side, and you you touched on that. Yeah. And I think um, in terms of the, um, it's more evident with. The professional side, yes. and we've all seen these boxers who have thrown the heart and soul into the whole career, and for whatever reason, they've not made it. Um, they've got nothing else behind them. They've boxed their whole career. They left school when they were fourteen. Boxed their whole life. Um, they should have probably stopped boxing three or four years ago, but they've got nothing else to do, so they keep going on the hope that they're going to make it. And in those two and three years, they're taking real punishment. They're taking real yeah. batterings and doings. So. My question was going to be to you, and you, you've sort of answered this. Um, does Boxing have an obligation to look after these people, to take a small percent of the profits of the, the, the global boxing to make a fund to make sure that, that boxers are looked after after their career, if it didn't work out for them? Well, 
I think that's not a bad idea. <clears throat> and I think given the money at the top level, well, here's, here's the thing, right? So at the very top level, the boxers are making millions. And they're not boxing as much as they did 20, 30, 40 and years. And people think that's what a professional boxer is, sitting, not, sitting on a yacht in Dubai. No, no. And it's not. You're right. Mm -hmm. I mean, I'm, right, I'll be open here. I've been to two or three professional shows in the last year, year and a half. And the standards are appalling, right? Now, people say, yeah, people say, oh, he's a professional. Must be good. No, it doesn't mean that. I mean, no, I'm not a career. You could just say, go in and say, I'm going to be a professional boxer. I want to be, and, and, and the British Boxing Board of Control a Committee will sit uh, across the table for you and they'll say, right, tell us about yourself. Well, I've had uh, <clears throat> 18 fights and, and uh, 17 losses or whatever, you know, give, give them. And they'll go, okay, there's your license. You get a medical, you got your medical, you're passed, you're through. You're not a professional boxer. Now, I have absolutely no idea what these guys at that level are paid, but I'm guessing it's not a lot. It'll be hundreds of pounds a night for a right. fight or... Right, yeah. I'm guessing it's around that, 100, mm -hmm. 150. So what you've, what you've got is... Now, now, let me take you back to a story which kind of sums this up. <clears throat> I was 19. I used to be chief, chief sparring partner for Walter McGowan, right? When McGowan had a big fight, he would say to me, come down for a week to Hamilton. And I'd spar with him every day and we'd run in the morning. We'd train three times a day. And we'd spar in the evening and maybe even at lunchtime. McGowan wins the world championship against uh, Salvatore Baruni at Wembley, the Wembley Arena. And the Daily Record stages a big gala dinner for him to uh, celebrate him winning the world title. So I'm there, and I'm at a big table with all professional boxers. John Cowboy McCormack, uh, John O'Brien, who's a European featherweight champion, oh, a whole host of them. And heading that table was Peter Keenan, himself a fabulous boxer in the 1950s. And actually, he's worth a book because Keenan was semi-literate, self-educated. But he was a guy who, when you weren't allowed to promote your own fights, that was against the rules. But in effect, he was promoting all these big fights because the promoters who were there in name only, you know, didn't actually do the work. And Keener was boxing for world titles and, and European titles, British Empire titles and so on. He was in places like Kathkin, the former home of Third Lanark, with 30,000 people there to see him. Wow. And, and, you know, in Fairhill, 30,000 people. They're all on the, on, on the, on the grass with flooring on it and, and in the stands. That wouldn't happen these days. So Keenan is not only trying to beat the guy in the opposite corner, he's looking around the crowd in, in between rounds and seeing if there's any empty seats and seeing how much money he's, he's taking in that night. <laughs> Phenomenal, right. So Keenan's at this table, he's heading this table, and he said to me, and it wasn't a question, he said to me, <clears throat> right, Frank, Frankie, as he called me, and they all did at that time, here's what's happening. You'll go to London and you'll be managed by Al Phillips, who's a very well-known boxing manager. 
and your box on Harry Levine shows Mickey Duff, Mike Barrett. That was a kind of cartel down in London, whereas Jack Solomons was the other big promoter. So that was kind of two camps. And Keenan was their man in Scotland. He promoted at Paisley Ice Rink, 5,000 people every time there was a show on. Fantastic. So he said, then up here your box for me. And it wasn't a question. It was like, this is what's happening. He assumed, as did Walter McGowan's dad, Joe Gans, who was his manager and coach, that I would just turn professional when they, they asked me. And I said, I, I said, that's not for me. And he was astounded. He said, what do you mean? You'd be turning pro, wouldn't you? You've been to the European Championships. You've won the Scots. You've done this, box for Scotland, turning pro. And I thought, you know, up until the age of 17, that was always in my thought, I'm going to go pro. But by then, I got past that kind of thinking. And I looked around and I said, Peter, I'm looking around this table. I said, and the only guy here who is wearing a mohair suit, smoking a Havana cigar, and drinking a Napoleon brandy <laughs> is the promoter. All the other guys are just like us. They're working professionals who are not making a hell of a lot of money. You know, I said, so, and that night really kind of confirmed to me that this is not a good idea. And that's why I say it, professional boxers. Now, what are they getting? Two fights a, a year? Three fights a year? F for what? Have you made to make a living out of that? That's... Well, they're not even making a living. Mm -hmm. Most of them, well, I would assume, have jobs on the side. You would hope they have yeah. jobs because they're never going to make a living from uh, from boxing. Not until, even when they get to the higher, in, in Britain, if you get to the higher levels, it's different if you're a heavyweight. There's an old saying in boxing, the wee men do all the fighting, the big men got all the money. Mm -hmm. For some strange reason, and look at the heavyweight division now, it's awful. Do you think it's awful in oh, terms of God, the, the, yeah. the main three we've got, yeah. Wilder, Fury and yeah. Joshua, isn't it? And yeah. they don't fight each other, No, which is bizarre. That's, that's, that's right. Mm -hmm. they, they talk about it. Talk about it a lot. For me, you've got so you've got Tyson Fury, six foot nine, twenty stone. Right? How do you how do you hit a guy like that on the chin, and unless you've got a ladder and he stands still, just can't. So what you've got is essentially big brutes, you know, of of men who, if you take Fury, well, they can't throw combination punches. Right? Two punches about the max that they throw, and they, then they have to regroup. Fury throws one, two, grab. One, two, grab. He has to grab because he's done his two punches and he doesn't want to be caught. So he grabs. That, that's his technique. That's how he gets through. He's a big, he's got 20 stone leaning on a guy in a clinch, half the fight. And then the bizarre situation where you've got Francis Ngannou who boxed him, who's never boxed before. And he's now rated number 10 in the mm -hmm. world. That's how poor the heavyweight division is. I actually think he won that fight. Nah, I don't no. think so. No. No. Don't think so. I mean, he knocked him down. That was it. But that was, and even it was a it was a poor punch. I hit him high in the head. But I didn't think he won it. I mean, it was close enough, but that that's probably because Fury took it too lightly. He mm. thought, well, this guy, he's never boxed. What's he going to do? So you've got these guys who are big, and they're, they're kind of not mobile, right? And they haven't got rhythm. 
what have they got? They've got punching power. So that's what they go for, and that's what the crowd loves. The crowd loves to see a big guy getting thumped and landing on his back. Mm-hmm. That's Joshua's game, isn't it? He's, yeah. he's got his straight right, the punch of love. Yeah. yeah. But there you are, you mm. see. I've criticised Joshua for his straight right before because I think most of the time he throws it with a straight arm. And it's only now and again when he thinks about it, he gets the cross right. Otherwise, I think he could have been better than he... Well, he's world, he was a world champion. How, mm. can, how can he get any better than that? But I think he could have been a better fighter if you'd let me near him. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> Agree. So who is, um, if we we're talking about the big guys, who who is the, the best heavyweight of all time, in your your opinion? Right, that's a hard one, you know, because... Um, it's Eros as well, isn't it? It's yeah, hard Eros as uh-huh. well. You know, you've got the, the, the Dempseys and the Jack Johnsons and, and what, what you've got to try and get into your head was people like Jack Johnson were 45-round fights, you know, and you can't get that. And, and there's a famous thing where he lost uh, to Jess Willard. 45 rounds. 45 rounds. Jesus. So he, he's boxing, he's defending his title. Of course, the, the, the white establishment in America hated the fact that he was there, uh, not only because of the colour of his skin, but because he was an extravagant character who went with white women. Mm-hmm. So he was he was a gambler, he was a womanizer, he was a drinker, he was all the things that they hated. And he was black. And they hated that. So they looked forever and ever, for, for years, to find... A white some, person to go and beat him. Right. Mm-hmm. That's what they looked yeah. for. So they found Jess Willard, six foot seven, a farmer from Texas, who only started boxing when he was 27. So they f- the fight goes on at Cuba, Havana, and it's blistering sun, and it's famous because it's a 45-round fight, and in round 26, um, Johnson is hit, and he goes down. Now, the pictures show he's lying on the ground, covering his face from the sun, shielding his face, and he's counted out. And afterwards, he said... I took a dive because of death threats because they were looking for the great white hope and they thought they'd found it. Well, they did uh, in Jess Willard. But he says, I, you know, my life was threatened. If you win this contest, you're dead. Jess Willard's retort to that is, why did you wait to the 26th round? Take a dive. Yeah, two, round <laughs> seven. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, and that's fair enough. That's mm-hmm. a fair enough argument. But these are the great heavyweights, Jack Dempsey. My goodness, Gene Tunney, an artist, you know. But the guy I think who's over overlooked in in lots of these debates is Rocky Marciano. Marciano, five foot ten and a half, thirteen and a half stone. Of course, you don't get heavyweights at that uh, weight. He would be a heavyweight now. No, he wouldn't no. be a heavyweight. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. And he had the most. Dev- he, he, You know, he he didn't have a lot of skill, but his skill was knowing how to overcome his disadvantages, his height and reach, just like Mike Tyson, and how to overcome that and be a winner. And so uh, he's up there, in my view. Um, What about Mike Tyson? Well, Tyson. But before that, let me pick probably my favourite as an artist, as a it's a brilliant I love puncher. that as an artist. That's, yeah. Yeah. Joe Lewis. Okay. Right. Now, Joe Lewis, 
This is the heavyweight division, not my greatest favourite uh, fighter of all time. Mm -hmm. Sugar Ray Robinson is, mm -hmm. is that guy. And I trained with him. And um, Joel Lewis had this brilliant timing that he could knock a guy out with one punch. He was super duper when it came to one punch. And it was all about the timing. And it was all about the shortness of the punch. Uh, Tyson, Tyson's knows his disadvantages. He knows what he's got to do. Now, he had to adopt the, the peekaboo style, like Floyd Patterson before him, both coached by Customato. Mm -hmm. They were short for their weight, so th th they couldn't out-jab their opponent. You know, a taller guy will always out-jab you if, he's, if there's equal skill. He couldn't do that. He had to get close. He had to hook, right? That was, he couldn't jab. He had to get close enough to hook and find the chin. So he did that with head movement. And, and uh, it, it was all about head movement, getting close, because you upset, you, 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 you upset and you antagonize an opponent, a taller opponent, if, you, if that target that he's trying to hit is moving and won't stay still and won't be hit. So if he keeps moving, it unnerves your opponent, and then he gets himself into a position where he can hook over the top. And the damage he did was phenomenal until... Those bigger guys were better opposition. So you win all these kind of knockout victories against big guys. Then you get against the big guys who are actually good. Yeah. Right. And that's when, how do we cope with Tyson? Well, we don't let him too close and we uppercut him. Right. And, and there was a lot of that going on in the heavyweight division when, he, when Tyson was there. Still a great champion. No, absolutely. Yeah. Unbelievable. <laughs> um, so one of the bits, I'm, I'm going to chance my arm here and get some free advice from you. <laughs> um, uh, so I've uh, I've recently, I, I spend most of my time sitting on my backside, doing absolutely nothing, but yeah. not nothing I work. Uh, in, but my, my life's fairly sedentary. So I've taken... Um, through the podcast, I've taken up a challenge um, to to really push myself on my fitness level. So it was one of the guests on before. He's an ex MMA professional MMA fighter, right? Um, and he's training me not not to fight, just to um, really push myself. Now, one of the things I've always really struggled with is my wrists and my forearms are always the weakest point. They always get sore when I'm working out, when I'm doing anything at all, or hitting a bag for just for 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 cardio. Um, what do you do for that? As a boxer, you must know how to strengthen your wrists. I'm afraid you've asked the wrong guy here. Really? <laughs> uh, I, I guess what you guys are doing, you've, you've just built I've it up over. Done, I've never had a problem. Yeah. And, you know, I get similar questions on, on the comments uh, on Instagram. Mm -hmm. Guys who have boxed and they're older now and they're saying, "Why well, do you not get problems with your shoulders? No. What, what about your wrists? You know, yeah. elbow, do you, get, uh -huh. do you get sore? And I know, no, I don't. And, and... And one of the things I was explaining uh, today when I was at this seminar was that what I found now is that many people, especially young people, because of these boxing gloves, right? The mm -hmm. boxing gloves are so rigid now yeah. that you can't wrap your thumb round and make it into a fist. It's set uh, because it's attached. The thumb is attached by a piece of elastic mm -hmm. onto the main part of the mm -hmm. glove. Right, so, in fact, that dictates where you're going to put your hand. And invariably, you can't get it. Now, if you can't close your hand tightly and punch with the knuckle part of the glove, you're in danger 
of doing yourself damage. One of the things people do is bend the wrist when they're hooking, right? And what's happening is they're punching here, down the knuckles here, or the bottom part of the finger, rather than the knuckle part of the glove. Mm -hmm. And they're in danger of damaging the wrist, mm -hmm. right? So you've got to keep a straight line, a straight line all the time to keep it firm and stable and turn like this. Look, it's still straight, Yeah. right? If you do that and you hit somebody on the top of the head as he's coming forward, then it's end of story. So yeah. wrist. I think I am... Because I actually hurt my wrist quite badly and it was hitting someone. So uh, it probably... It, with outfitting gloves, so that's probably what's happened to me. No, it's not. You're doing it the wrong way. Yeah, that, 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 and that is 100% um, more likely to be the truth than anything else. Um, so before we finish up, Frank, I've got um, a couple of quick fire questions I'd love, I'd love to ask you. Sure. Um, what makes a champion? Attitude. Um, forget about the fitness and the ability. We take that for granted. The ability and the, the ability also to think their way through a contest. Attitude. You know what I don't like now? I don't like, and it, and it, for me it detracts. Have you taken, we've spoken about fury. I hate the bragging. Mm. I hate all this pre-fight and post-fight nonsense and shouting and bawling and you've got his dad involved. Yeah. And, and it, It's like a pantomime, isn't it? It is a pantomime. Yeah, yeah. But worse than that, it's degrading for boxing and it's demeaning. And I think... What, he, what, what that does, and I don't like all of that stuff, and I don't even like it today with unknown boxers who, and they're kind of forced in it, into it by promoters. They think the razzmatazz of standing in a doorway with some kind of sparkly things going on and music thumping, they stand there for two minutes posing before they make their way to the ring. They think that is going to excite the crowd. It doesn't. It's boring. It's boring. Just get there from the changing room into the ring, into, and the introductions take 10, ten minutes. Mm. I timed one in, in a big fight recently. Uh, it wasn't Michael Buffer. It was the other guy with the lots of hair at the back. And I thought, right, I'm going to time this. And he, he started his introduction of the fighters, the judges. The fighters had endless words before we actually got the guy's name. Mm -hmm. And it took 10 minutes. And I think, like, if I've paid a, whatever they pay for these fights and I'm sitting watching, I just want the, the guys to get in and say, that's Boxer A, that's Boxer B, this is the World Heavyweight Championship, whatever. Right? Absolutely. And get on with it. But the promoters have lost the plot in this one. They think that that's what the public wants. I don't believe they do. Certainly not the boxing public. People who are really interested, they want to see the contest. So at, at, what makes a champion? Attitude, dignity, humility, authenticity. Mm -hmm. All that is part of the makeup of a champion. Not just the ability, the talent, obviously. That comes without saying. Uh, but all that makes a champion. Because it makes a champion person, which I think is more important than being a champion boxer. I think that's an absolutely beautiful answer. I was expecting you to say about the physicality of it and what they're doing, but no, that, that's absolutely perfect. Another one for you. I think I can answer this now after our talk. Favourite punch, least favourite punch? Uh, well, <laughs> I like the uppercut, right? And uh, <clears throat> you mean for me to do? You, yeah. yeah oh, or just, any punch, any, right? Yeah. The counter punch for me, 
any counter punch. So you're going back? When you're going back, right? People think you can only punch when you're attacking. But in fact, you take a guy like Dick McTaggart, who we've spoken about, his whole kind of raison d'etre in boxing was counter-punching, making the guy make a mistake and cashing in on it. Uh, so any counter-punch, and the greatest counter-punch I've seen, one of the greatest I've ever seen, was the second fight between Sugar Ray Robinson and Gene Fulmer. Gene Fulmer was a tough, tough farmer, uh, really tough. He'd beaten Robinson in the first fight, took the middleweight championship. Now it's the return. And Robinson just saw this glimmer of opportunity, this just kind of chink of a chance to do something as Fulmer just moved slightly forward. And Robinson, who was an artist, he was the greatest of all time in my view and in the view of many old-style old boxing pundits. He just sways to one side and releases the shortest of left uppercuts. And it was Goodnight Vienna for <laughs> for Gene Fulmer. Yeah. It was such a beautiful punch. Yeah. In, but, your, in your least favourite? Well, you don't see this so much, but you see it more in novices where they've got this big overhand right and they're trying to de decapitate somebody with it, you know. Heavyweights love that one, don't they? they yeah. Yeah. Uh -huh. Yeah. And it's, it's kind of crazy, you know, and you think, but it's dangerous. Novices, guys who haven't had contests or have had a lot fewer, more inexperienced, and, and you could meet them in a championship. If you're saying, well, you're drawn against that guy, how many fights has he had? Oh, he's only had three. Oh, my goodness, you know what it's going to be like. It's going to be like torture. He's not going to be able to engage on a level that you would like. He's going to do daft things, awkward things, and he's going to make you look daft. And he's throwing punches. What you're thinking? Well, you feel like saying, you know, calm down, just let's, let's box, not let get into a rammy here. So, I, I guess the big kind of flailing overhead punches yeah. are a nightmare. A windmill. If yes, they, if they catch you, they're effective. But uh, yes, <laughs> and that's the problem with them. Yeah. Um, and this this goes back to the longevity. Um, if you could only do three exercises or advice to do three exercises for the rest of your days, you're banned from doing everything else. What three exercises are you doing to keep yourself fit and healthy? Well, do you mean apart from boxing? Yeah, exercise? no, individual exercises. So an individual like um, lunges or right. push-ups or... Yeah, well, push-ups I do. And, and uh, we're just saying that today... Do you still do them today, yeah? Sorry? Do you still rattle out the push-ups, yeah? Yeah, I can still yeah. do the push-ups. Uh, and I do lots of stuff, like lots of tummy exercises. Okay. Right, so even simple things. Look, lying on your back, everybody knows this. You, If you put your feet together and raise them six inches off the ground... It's hard. It's hard. Now, the key thing is, the two key things, is you hold it as long as you can. But lots of people think that you should uh, hold your breath when you're doing that, which is the wrong thing. So... Whatever you're doing, what exercise, whatever exercise you're doing, you must breathe as normally as you can, because otherwise, you, you know, if you're holding your breath, you're kind of negating the kind of benefit of what you're getting. So, a simple thing like that, and even circling them tightly, not big, big circles, but little circles like mm -hmm. that, and holding. Now, the other thing is, when I, when you say to people, right, and finish, and they drop. They ten, nine times out of ten, they go thud. Been there. They buy but, well, right. Mm -hmm. So you've got to keep control. 
Not your, not your legs, not your tummy. You control, you lay them down nicely and gently and then you rest for 10 seconds, you do it again. Now, what you'll find is you get better, it will get longer and longer. And whatever exercise you do, it will get better. There's one exercise that I would advise to anybody, which is when you get up in the morning, because of the position of your, your sleeping, and it's kind of you're crunched up, as it were, your spine needs to be stretched. Right, so there are simple things to do. You can just get out of bed in the morning and put your arms above your head and and actually reach for the ceiling, right? Without raising your feet off the ground, reach for the ceiling. Believe me, you'll feel, you'll feel it coming. You'll feel that the spine is stretching. And you do that for a few seconds, push it up. Just look at a point on the ceiling and push it up towards that. And that, that sets you up. Yeah. Sets you up. Stretch of the day. Yeah. And the final question, Frank, what's next? Wow. Well, listen, I, this is I, this is kind of me reinventing myself. So I've gone through a newspaper career, television career. I've written a couple of books. No, I've written three books. I've written a play for Dundee Rep, which was produced many years ago called The Harp and the Violet. And, um, I, and I'm trying – I like to try all – different kinds of stuff. Um, so this is fresh. This TikTok and the, the, the other, the other Instagram, one, the Instagram yeah. one. Yeah, this is all fresh for me. And you know what? I've kind of been reinvigorated because I'm reading comments which are extremely complimentary and encouraging. And that's the most important thing for me. I'm encouraged to say, you know, if I got lots of comments which are were derogatory or why are you doing this and all that stuff. And I do get them occasionally, but in the main, I would say 90% or more of the comments are from people like yourself who are saying, you, you, if you can, you're 78, what? Well, I can do that and get back into the gym, do stuff, get walking, get running. You know, not a big fan of running, mm -hmm. but get doing something which takes you out of your comfort zone because that will soon become your comfort zone. You know, in, in a very quick space of time, you'll find that I've been doing this for ages when in fact you've just started. Give it two, three weeks, three times a week, whatever you knock on somebody's door and say, can I join your gym? Mm -hmm. do, do something that will keep you moving. Now, it doesn't have to be expensive. You don't have to go and pay you know, heaps of money to join a, a private gym. If you can't, do it. If not, go to your boxing club. Find out. You know, in the bo in the club where I use, they do boxer size classes, and I think they pay six pounds, and it's packed, right? And they get put through their paces, and it's tough. And they do, I think it's an hour, an hour and a half, and at the end of it, you could see them all. They're all wringing with sweat. They're all exhausted. But you know what? The endorphins have kicked in and they're all loving it. You know, they're high as kites and, and they're talking about, will you be back on Tuesday? Yeah, well, I'll see you here. No. And so it all becomes a kind of family thing and it, and, and it's, it changes your life. It does. No, that's incredible. Frank, it's been an absolute honour to speak to you. I could speak to you all day and with heartfelt appreciation, thank you for taking the time to come and speak to me. No, thank you, Danny. I've loved it. Thank Excellent. you. Cheers.